Well, hey everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm thrilled to have you along for the ride. Um, And just to get the awkward thing out of the way, I wore a white undershirt and a black top shirt, and so I look a bit like a priest, (laughs) which my wife told me about and I had not noticed. I love her, but I had no other shirt, so not a priest, this is the outfit, sorry. Anyway... (laughs) We are in the middle of a series called Who is God that explores what God has revealed about himself um, as well as how he wants us to relate to him through the authors of both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. And as many of you know, for the past five weeks, we've been exploring what God uh, disclosed to the people of ancient Israel through what we today refer to as the Ten Commandments. And honestly, it's been a lot of fun. If you've missed any of those talks, totally encourage you to catch up on our website. Uh, But with our time today... We get to sort of turn the page, and I want to explore something absolutely incredible that God revealed about himself in the pages of the New Testament. But before we go there, I want to publicly answer a question that was sent to me by email last week. A friend reached out and essentially said this, I've been in church like my whole life, decades even, and I've sat through more than my fair share of series on the Ten Commandments. So basically, when you started, you know, exploring the Ten Commandments, he's like, I kind of rolled my eyes. But he said, I've never before considered what the Ten Commandments had to teach us about who God is. Like, uh, it was always just a bunch of rules to follow and not so much the character of God being revealed through those rules. And so he says, like, where did you get the idea to explore the Ten Commandments in that way from? And, And honestly, the answer to that question, well, it's tied to the reason I wanted to do this whole series this summer. Uh, Namely, like many of you, I have some close friends who've left the faith uh, due to some incredibly unhelpful expectations that they picked up about who God is during their childhood. And already a few of you are thinking about that one friend, because I think we all have them, right? Uh, And whenever I meet someone like that, normally at Starbucks, because that is what Jesus would do, I, I always find that the stories of their deconversions from Christianity are, are eerily similar. Uh, They almost always connect the erosion of their faith, not to scandals in the church or disappointment with church leaders, and those things do happen, but, but they tie the deconversion to the fact that, well, as they got older, and as they began to ask some difficult questions about their faith and about their life, they struggled to reconcile their childhood expectations of God with the reality of how they experienced Life. In other words, growing up, they were either taught, or some would just say they sort of caught a set of expectations for who God is, but, but as they lived their lives, they came to realize that many of those expectations simply couldn't be true, or at least not true in the way that they had been led to believe. Uh, their childhood expectations couldn't hold up to their adult observations. And, and so at first, uh, they began to question, like lying in bed at night, just kind of running through different questions in their head. And then eventually they would say, you know, they stopped believing. And I'm telling you, at that moment in the conversation, they say, you know, then I just, I stopped believing. It takes everything in me, with me not to start singing. Don't stop believing. <laughs> Hold on to the feeling, right? And, and, and full disclosure, I'm a recovering disc jockey from the 1990s. <laughs> And, uh, but my counselor says I'm doing okay. <laughs> but but, but see, I don't really sing. But seriously, in those moments at Starbucks, I always affirm that their experience of deconversion and deconstruction of religious expectations, it's, it's far from unique. I said, you're not the first one to walk this path, and, and you're certainly not the last. 
Uh, in fact, a few years ago, I came across a quote that I absolutely love from an author named Karen Armstrong. I shared this years ago, uh, but she's one of those brilliant people who does TED Talks. And because of her story, because of her life experience, she has some incredible insights about religious expectations and experiences. So here's what she said in a book called The Case for God. And Karen writes, many of us have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. She says, we learned about God about the same time we were told about Santa Claus. And then she goes on. But while our understandings of the Santa Claus phenomena evolved and matured, our theology, like what we think about God, remained somewhat infantile. This is not surprisingly, when we attained intellectual maturity, many of us rejected the God we had inherited and denied that he existed. I'm telling you, like, whether we recognize it or not, the expectations that we carry about who God is and how he wants to relate to us can make a big difference in how and even if we want to pursue a relationship with him. Okay, so now just for fun, um, in preparation for today, I decided to make you a list of some of the more popular false expectations for God that eventually tend to be abandoned. Are you ready? It's amazing. Check this out. Oh, this is so exciting. Okay, first up, in my experience, many people grow up with the idea that God is a bodyguard, like Kevin Costner was to Whitney Houston in that movie long ago, right? Yeah, in other words, at one point or another, they came to believe that if they believed in God, then God would keep bad things from happening to them. And if you push in, some people would say, I kind of had the sense God would keep all bad things from happening to me. But then, of course, they live their lives. <laughs> and notice that from time to time, sometimes feels like often, uh, bad things did happen to them. And so eventually they stopped believing that God is a bodyguard. And then there's the popular, though false, expectation that God is a genie. And, and to be fair, not the genie in the bottle sort of genie, right? Um, but it's like many well-intentioned people carry a sense that God is sort of on call to do their bidding as long as their requests are fair and selfless and, and they believe hard enough. And if, and if you're new to faith, you're probably like, well, where would anybody get an idea like that? Well, to be fair, Jesus did say this to his followers one day. It's recorded in Matthew's account of his life. He says, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And, and that sounds awesome, at least at first. But I'm telling you, whatever Jesus meant by that, it must have not been a categorical promise. Because sometimes, and maybe you've noticed, you ask God for an answer and you don't get one. Am I the only one? Right? And other times you ask God for a date and you don't get one. <laughs> Am I the only? Right, right, yeah. Um, or you ask God for a miracle and you don't get one. Like a specific supernatural invention, intervention in an impossible situation and it doesn't come. And then there's the moment for many of us when we recognize and realize that we're actually sort of glad that God doesn't honor all of our requests when and how we ask him. Because if he did, you're thinking back to high school now, maybe college, more than a few of us would have been married to the wrong human, right? All that to say, many people reach a point where they stop believing that God is a genie. Uh, okay, so the next one on my list, we can go back to that list. The next one um, has to do with the popular, though misplaced expectation that God is generally angry with me. And if you grew up in church, a few you just went, mm, right? Like that Christian mooing thing, because you're like, dude, that was my experience, that God is generally angry with me. And for many people, you know, when they were growing up again, they were taught that God loved them, 
but didn't necessarily like them very much. Or, or that God loved them until they did this sort of thing or that sort of thing. Or if you grew up in the 80s like I did, you listened to Madonna. I don't know what was wrong with Madonna, but whatever, right? But yeah, it's just like if you do that, then God isn't going to like you very much. And so consequently, these people lived with a lot of fear of what God would do to them because of what they had done. Now, but here's the thing. Um, it's really hard to live with that level of chronic religious anxiety. And I think that's why so many people who carry that chronic religious anxiety eventually just throw up their hands and they stop believing in a God who is generally angry with them. Okay, just one more, because um, we're on a roll. Based on a whole bunch of conversations over the years, it seems like many people grow up with the expectation that God is sort of anti-science. Like there's a cage match, and God is in this corner, and science is in the other corner. Uh, and like, if you're a person of faith, you need to choose between God and science. Or maybe if you're a person of faith, then you can't be someone who puts any sort of trust in science. And if that was your experience, um, you likely tried to ignore the tension for as long as you could, but eventually you were forced to choose. And when you did, like many before you, you likely chose what seems to be undeniable over the supernatural. You may have even thought something like this. Um, I just can't stop thinking or asking questions. I understand it takes faith, but I, I need to be able to be honest about my questions. And, and for me, just to give up on categorically on science doesn't feel intellectually honest. But if, but if God is anti-science, that's the only choice that I have. And so maybe you reached a point where you stopped believing in a God who is anti-science. So you kind of work through this and you deconstruct these expectations. And I'm, I'm telling you, many people who grow up with expectations like these eventually wake up one morning and they've sort of deconstructed themselves right out of faith in God. Like all the things I thought that God was, I've now decided aren't true. And so I guess I just don't believe anymore. And, and, and this is what's so fun about my job. If this reality that, that all of a sudden faith has completely unraveled bothers someone enough, they often reach out to someone like me and ask what, if anything, they can do to recover their faith. And whenever someone asks me what they can do to recover their faith, I always say the same thing. I say, you need to find some proper expectations for who God is expectations that he revealed to us through the authors of the Bible. Because when it comes to faith in God, expectations matter. They matter a lot. And they're actually why I wanted to do this series with you over the summer. Okay, so now with the rest of our time today, I want to show you how an early pastor named Paul, again, this is in the New Testament of your Bibles, I want to show you how Paul introduces God to a group of people who had never heard of him before. A group of people who like, in other words, had no expectations for God. And to that end, we're going to listen in on a 2,000-year-old conversation that was recorded for us in a New Testament letter called Acts, A-C-T-S. It's the actions of those first followers of Jesus. And the conversation takes place in a very exotic location, not for them, but more for us, Athens, Greece. Isn't that a great shot? Thank you, the internet, right? Uh, 20 years or so after the crucifixion of Jesus. And at that time, you should know, Athens was sort of in its prime as a philosophical center for the Roman Empire. So people you may have heard of from uh, high school history class, uh, famous philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all spent time in Athens. So uh, imagine large cosmopolitan city, lots of columns, lots of smart people kind of wandering around. Here's how the author of Acts, uh, Jesus follower named Luke, sets up the conversation for us. 
Luke writes, While Paul was waiting for his traveling companions in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And as I was doing the research for this talk, I found this ancient historian who said, you know, it's, it was far easier in ancient Athens to find an idol than a, a human. And, and then I read some more commentary about that quote, and somebody pointed out that this same historian was also known to exaggerate, but you get his point, right? Lots of idols, lots of religion, lots of temples. It was a pagan Roman city. Luke continues. So, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And a God-fearing Greek would be a Greek person who basically has sort of converted to Judaism, as well as in the marketplace. So Paul just doesn't go to the church people or the synagogue people or the Jesus people. He goes into the marketplace and talks to everyone. So day by day with those who happened to be there. So notice something. This is powerful to me. Paul believed that his message... The message of Jesus was for everyone, religious and irreligious, Jewish and non-Jewish, pagan people, everybody. He was convinced that the message of Jesus was a message that God intended for the whole world. And then Luke goes on. He tells us, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So Paul begins to talk about Jesus, and there are these philosophers who are sort of in residence in Athens, and they sort of start to debate Paul. Not only do they want to understand, they want to sort of win the argument. So what exactly did these people believe? Well, Epicureans were a group who believed that there was no afterlife, like this life was all there is. And so they instructed their followers to eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, enjoy each day that you're given. And then the Stoic philosophers, uh, they actually taught that God couldn't really be known. We couldn't really know the divine. And so people should just focus on self-discipline. So the one group is like, eat, drink, and be merry. The other group is like, don't eat, drink, and be merry. So there, there you go, right? So Luke continues. He says, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Which is actually something people have said about me in the past. But I feel like I'm in good company, right? What is this babbler trying to say? They had never heard any of this before. Nothing about Jesus, nothing about the crucifixion. And he goes on, others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and look, for, look at this, and the resurrection, so he starts to talk, and he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about God sent his one and only son because he loved the world. And then the world turned on the son, and the son was crucified. But then God raised Jesus from the dead. But just notice that nobody in Athens had heard anything about Jesus or his resurrection. Paul was introducing new ideas. Again, no expectations. Blank slate. You say to Paul, where do you want us to start? Here we go. So in, in ancient Athens, um, you had to get permission from the authorities to introduce new religious ideas. And it was kind of a way to keep uh, order in the civic life of the citizens. And so these philosophers kind of throw the flag and they're like, okay, Paul, we're not having this conversation in the marketplace, so we got to move you. So they moved Paul to the spot where new ideas were considered. And Luke described it this way. He writes, they took him, so Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And you're like, oh, the Areopagus. What's that? I'll show you in a second. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. 
He says, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. We would like to know what you mean by trying to communicate these ideas. And, and this is kind of a cool aside. You can actually visit the site of the ancient Areopagus in Athens today. Lots of tourists do. You can buy t-shirts, right? It's the rocky area right in the front of this photo. And it's also on my bucket list. I haven't made it there yet, so we should all totally go someday. Uh, stay tuned for an upcoming tour, maybe a decade or so out. But anyway, um, not one to miss an opportunity. So Paul gets hauled before like this city council to consider the new ideas. And Paul launches into an epic monologue because that's what he does. And here's what Paul says. People of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. And that could be critical or not. And we kind of see what he's getting at when he goes forward. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, all the temples, all the altars, he goes, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And, and, and I, this is super cool, but archaeologists have actually found an altar like this one, which you can visit in the Athens Museum, that is inscribed with the words, to an unknown God. God. Somewhere in the ruins of ancient Athens, this was found, and an archaeologist got super excited when they found it, right? But it's almost like the people of ancient Athens, as they were sort of seeking God in, in all the different ways, or seeking the gods, they thought, like, what if we missed one? <laughs> like, we wouldn't want to, like, offend somebody, and, and so maybe what we should do is make an extra altar and sort of title it, to whom it may be concerned, right? And, and so if this unknown deity suddenly showed up in our midst, uh, we could pull the altar down off the shelf and go, look, we were expecting you. <laughs> you are welcome here. Please bless us. Hold the lightning bolts, right? So this was, this was the idea. So Paul's like, man, you are a religious people. Everything about you is seeking the divine. You even have this, this altar to the unknown God. And, and so he says, so you are ignorant. And that sounds mean, but it's not. Just means kind of not aware. You are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, like you're seeking God, but you don't know him. You don't know what you're really seeking. And he goes, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And I just imagine all of the Areopagus, Areopagus, Areopagai, the people kind of crossing their arms and going, Paul, who do you think you are? So Paul says, you don't know, but I'm about to tell you. And I love that. Paul, it's like Paul says to them, listen, the whole thing with the divine is so uncertain right? And you're, you're making temples and you're making altars and it's all so uncertain. And he goes, well, I'm about to take the un out of uncertain. I was waiting all week for that one. Let me try it again. <clears throat> I'm going to take the <laughs> un out of uncertain, right? And so Paul continues. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, like the God of creation, the God that created the sea and the land, and the sky, and the heavens, and everything. The God who created you is the Lord, or the King, of heaven and earth. King of the universe. And does not live in temples built by human hands. He goes on. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Like all of this energy that you have around these temples and these sacrifices, it's like, listen, God... God doesn't need any of that. Rather, it says, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. He is the source of everything. Like he doesn't need you. He is entirely self-sufficient. 
And moreover, this God is, is bigger than all of your other gods. And just like you won't find a painter inside of her painting or a sculptor inside of something that he sculpts, you won't find this God in what he created. The creation reflects the greatness of God, but you won't find God in creation. And this harkens back to something we said a few weeks ago. He is beyond image. There's no image that you can make that will encapsulate the totality of who God is. He doesn't live in temples and he doesn't need anything from you. Paul goes on. He says, from one man, God made all the nations. He's like, we have a common ancestor, all of us, regardless of our nationality, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands is like God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. All of the Greek and Roman gods, they were regional. And Paul's like, this God rules everything. He goes on. He says, and God did this so that they, meaning all of us, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And then I love this. Though he is not far from any one of us. Paul said, yeah, this is the God of creation. This is the God who hung the stars in the sky and knows them by name. Shout out to the old song, right? This God knows intimately, but this is not a God who created and stepped away. This is a God who is near. And notice that Paul began his speech by affirming the people in Athens. He says, listen, um, I commend you for seeking the divine. Like there is more than our eyes can see. And I also want to commend you for your awareness that, that, honestly, you don't know everything. There's some humility inherent in your religious posture because you know you don't know everything. That's why you made this altar to the unknown God. You're open. And in fact, Paul tells them that, that the God who created them has actually hardwired them to seek him. So he goes on. He says, for in him, in this God, king of the universe, we live and move and have our being. And he goes on, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul looks out at the people of Athens 2,000 years ago and says to them, listen, the first thing you need to know about the God who created you, the God who created the universe, the first expectation you need to carry for who God is, is that he is with us. He is with you, all of you. He's not distant. He's not disengaged. He's not a you know, divine watchmaker who sort of set the thing up and then lets it spin. He is with us. He is with you. And Paul goes on. Therefore, he says, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Again, God is beyond image. But he hardwired you to seek. So check out what he says next. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. In other words, you're blind reaching up, trying to connect with whatever is out there, that desire that he put in you, and you did it wrong. But in the past, he's overlooked such ignorance. But now, now things have changed. Now it's a new era. Now it's a new season. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And in this context, that means repent from making images of him, right? But he wants to reconnect with all people everywhere. And I'm telling you, this 
was incredible and unprecedented. A God of the universe who wants to connect with all people everywhere. And, and Paul said, you know, in the past again, God knew you, that he would seek you. You knew that he, you, he knew that you would seek him in strange ways and, and that's okay. And he knew that you would hold strange expectations for him and that's okay. But now, now God has done something new. Paul goes on. He says, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And you're like, well, who's the man? Answer to the question in church, who's the man? It's always Jesus. I'm just throwing it out there, right? Who's the man? Jesus. Justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof to everyone. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Again, the Areopagai fellas with their arms crossed. They're like, Paul, you gotta, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, we get what you're saying. One God, creator of heaven and earth. That sounds interesting. That is with us somehow. That's a mystery, but we can even be open to that. But come on, Paul. There's no proof in religion. There's no way there's proof. What in the world would be proof of what you're trying to say? How can anyone have religious certainty? What could God possibly have done to move us from I hope so to I know so? And Paul would say this. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Like in real time and real space. You want proof? The resurrection. And I think that's when the Athenian philosophers would have sat back in their chairs absolutely stunned. They wouldn't have had chairs. Maybe rock back on the rock or whatever they were sitting on, right? Yeah. And you got to remember, Paul wasn't just told about the resurrection. He didn't read about the resurrection. He was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. He knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God had done something and it had flipped his life completely around. I mean, and then now check out what happens next. So interesting. He says, when they heard about the resurrection, they fell on their knees and repented and set about destroying all their idols and altars. That's not what happened. I just made that up. <laughs> right? And I did that for a reason. I said, if this were just a Bible story, like a nice Bible story, that's probably what would happen, right? It's like the Scooby-Doo ending. It's like everything works out and Paul moves on to another city and does the same thing. But I'm convinced that this actually happened. This was a, the account of it, a real conversation that happened. And maybe you've noticed this, but religious conversations are often messy. Am I the only one, right? Look at what Luke told us really happened. When they heard about this, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. I bet a lot of them sneered. <laughs> but he says, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And Paul left the council. In other words, lots of people listened to Paul's message and thought, no way, that didn't happen and that doesn't happen. But a few people, they leaned in and said something like, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that this happened just a few years ago. It happened. And like you have talked to people and you have witnessed this resurrected Jesus. And Paul would say, yes. In fact, initially Paul would say, I used, did everything I could to stamp out Christians. But then one day I came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. So I'm telling you what God has done. And I love this. Interestingly enough, in a letter to early Christians in Greece, different place in Greece, Paul not only reiterates his central argument about the resurrection, he goes as far as to stake everything on what happened. Here's what he wrote. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, like from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Like, Paul, how far are you going to take this resurrection thing? Paul's like, it's everything. It's everything. To Paul, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus changed everything because it demonstrated the reality of God's love for all people. God so loved 
the world. God so loved every single person in the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And you think about it, like if God would send his one and only son to die for you, then not only is he with you, but he's for you. He wants you to step fully into the person he designed you to be. You never have to wonder. He is for you. So to summarize, God is not really much like a bodyguard, at least in the way we think about it. And he's not a genie. And he's not angry with you. And he's not anti-science. But whoever you are and whatever you've done, he's with you. And he's for you. And he wants to teach you and he wants to teach me to live a new and better sort of life right here and right now in the middle of this life by offering us the opportunity to follow the way of Jesus. To turn or repent from the sin in our lives and to enter into the sort of life that extends beyond this life. A life in which the king of the universe is also our king. In fact, I would argue, according to Paul, that is the place to begin if you want to find proper expectations for who God is. All right, so now if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand, and I'll close our time together in prayer. And before I pray, uh, once again this week, um, if you've come into this space and you just would like to pray with someone, something's going on in your life and you'd just like to talk to someone, invite you under the screen right over here um, after I pray and uh, we would love to meet you and, and to pray for you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we celebrate you this morning as the king of the universe, the one who hung the stars in the sky and yet knows us by name. Thank you for being with us. And we also celebrate the beautiful, incredible reality that whoever we are and whatever we've done, you are for us. You have dreams for us. You want us to thrive like a perfect heavenly father. You want your kids to be everything that they can be. And so we celebrate you. We thank you. And we bless you. In the matchless name of your Son, our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you back here next week for part seven of Who is God?